You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to have you here. We're in our second week of our series called An Ugly Christmas, and um, I'm wearing the new ugly sweater today, brought to you by Marsha Meekum. Thank you, Marsha. And you can tell it doesn't have all the bells on it, but uh, it definitely, um, on me, a little ugly. (laughs) Maybe on you it looked beautiful, but I don't know. If you've got an ugly sweater, I'll wear it. Just get it to me. Now, we've been going through an ugly year here in 2020. I don't know if you feel that way or not, but it seems to me we've had the ugly pandemic and ugly politics and ugly public discourse and an ugly economy. And you might feel the juxtaposition of 2020 and Christmas don't seem to jive, but I dare say to you today that this year might be the best year you've ever had in celebrating the real Christmas. Because stripped of all the tinsel and all the hype and all the commercialism, we may just see how God actually came to this ugly world with all of its real issues and downright even disgusting behavior among human beings, and that's the world he came for. He didn't come for a different one, a beautiful world. He came because of the ugliness of this world. So today, we're looking at two prophecies from the Old Testament that aren't typically read at this time of the year in this season that we often call Advent, which is this period right before Christmas. We don't usually read these, but everything they say really has to do with why Jesus came and what Jesus is about. Because what these passages do in Isaiah and Amos are talking about how you can replace and how God wanted to replace human cultural religion with true life and a true relationship with God. So we're looking at what I'm calling ugly religion today. And I am being a bit provocative with that title. I realize some people say, wait a minute, but isn't the Bible all about religion? And you'd be surprised. You might be surprised that time and time again, the Bible, it has a negative assessment of religion itself. So the question is why? Well, we'll see today. And then what's the alternative if we're not supposed to be, quote, religious? Well, we're going to find that out, too. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, this day, as we study your word, as we see what the prophets did in uh, (laughs) critiquing very uh, difficult time and an ugly time in Israel, how today it's much the same here in our day and age, and the words that they speak are very relative and very uh, significant for today, too. We pray, Lord God, that you'd be working by your spirit in our hearts and our lives right now. You know how ugly this year has been, but the saddest part, the despairing part for many of us is not that we've gone through some tough times, but how we have treated one another in the process. Lord God, we pray as Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that he would start with his people, his church, that we would become peacemakers, that we would show the beauty of living with him to the world around us, that we would learn of him, and that we would be able to spread the good news of this season, Lord, to this world right now in so desperate need of it. 
We do lift up to you, O Lord, all of our healthcare workers, all of our teaching uh, uh, teachers, all of our first responders who are at the front line of these things right now. And we pray, Lord, that you keep them safe and protect them. We also lift up to you, O Lord, um, all those who are hurting economically right now, all those who are struggling, all those who are facing so much despair and anxiety over the condition of this world, we pray, Lord, that moves them to trust you, to trust you fully and completely. We pray, Lord God, that you would do a work in their lives as well during this time. And Lord God, we pray that you would use the message today to instill in us hope and peace and joy and love the original reason you came. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, today we are looking at two prophecies that aren't typically read, like I said, at the Christmas time period. And talk about ugly, right now I think we're getting what, a silver alert, a amber alert, okay. Right now in the middle of it, uh, it's kind of like the warning signs are going off and I think that's what the case is, the warning signs are going off in these two texts that we're going to read, Amos chapter 5 and Isaiah chapter 29, as typical of what the prophets thought about religion, and they basically called it what it was. So, Amos 5, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of the harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And then from Isaiah 29. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. So far, the two prophets who really speak to the ugliness of religion in their day, and I dare say in any day. So we're going to look at these three points today the problem with religion, then secondly, the call of this prophetic faith from these two prophets and from others, and then God's surprising solution to the whole thing. So first of all, the problem with religion, and you say, religion, there's a problem with it? There's a lot of problems with it. Um, there are bumper stickers that say things like religion kills, and if you look at the 20th century, the 21st century, you could say that the religious wars and the religious hatred that has happened across this world is a pretty difficult thing to, well, grasp. How in the world, in the name of God or in the name of a religion, can people treat each other this way? Well, um, they also treat each other this way in the name of um, politics, in the name of uh, ideologies, in the name of even like atheism. There have been some of the most horrendous things that have been done in this world. So religion doesn't just have the corner on the market of violence and difficulty. But religion is something that God never wanted. I know that's a shocking statement, but we find this out in like the book of Amos. 
So one of the commentaries I read, Francis Anderson and David Friedman put it this way, the Bible generally has a very negative estimate of religions because most of them are false, and even the true one is continually liable to corruption. Okay? So we're going to kind of dissect that a bit and understand what's going on. Because we see that the true one right now, according to Amos, has been corrupted in his day. That the belief in the God of the covenant, the God of the promise, the God of the rescue from Egypt, the whole God of freedom has been corrupted in such a way that Amos cries out in the name of God, I hate, I despise your feasts and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Now, this isn't just Amos, this one little verse. And it's not just this one section out of Isaiah 29. In fact, the book of Isaiah starts off with an indictment against, quote, religion. In chapter one, it says, when you come to appear before me, what was required of you, this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Isaiah as well. Even at the beginning, his whole message is about a bunch of people talking and doing the religious stuff, and it just wasn't working. So the hypocritical practice of all religion is really something God cannot stand. And so Amos says, I hate it. He uses a specific word for hate. Karl Barth, one of the theologians, put it this way, God hates religion. He hates religion. And you're going like, whoa, wait a minute. Well, that's right out of Isaiah uh, and Amos. God hates religion. And uh, the word for hate here in Amos chapter 5 that we looked at is this word seneh, which means to detest. And even the fact that it's used as a word to say, I don't want to get rid of it, to divorce, to be separated from God, so hates this religious practice that was going on in Israel among his own people that he wants nothing to do with and wants it divorced from him. So the question you probably have is, why in the world is it so repugnant? I mean, it's human beings trying to attempt to try to get close to God. Religion is kind of that. Well, here, I think Karl Barth does it pretty well. He says, religion is a grasping Man is trying to grasp truth for himself. That's good. But in the case he does not want to do what the truth tells him to, he does not believe. If he did, he would listen. But in religion, he talks. If he did, he would accept a gift. But in religion, he takes something for himself. If he did, he would let God intercede for God. But in religion, he ventures to grasp at God. So religion, what Barth is saying, and what these texts are saying, is religion is our human attempt to manipulate and grasp God, to get what God wants, uh, God has, and to try to get him convinced to listen to us. And so we do a lot of talking. We tell God what to do all the time. We don't listen. We talk. We don't learn. We try to teach God a thing or two about how he should be running instead of trusting in God. Instead of letting God be God, we try to get God to do what we want. So we see that God's people, Israel, used the name of God and, quote, worshiped God to show God how great they were to get 
God to do what they wanted. John Oswald puts it this way in his commentary on Isaiah. He says, this people has lapsed into the manipulative style of religion typical of paganism. So religion has been turned into kind of a Skinner box with spirituality. You know, I push the lever of prayer to get God to give me what I want. I push the lever and I get out the Coke, you know, out of the machine. I, I, I push the lever to get the Mercedes in my driveway. I talk about wanting God, but I really just want prosperity. I just want stuff. I want all these things. I want power. I want control. I want my way done. And I'm trying to get God to do it. When you use God to get what you want, and when you pray and you work the rituals just to do that, when you believe you can get God to like you through what you do, you are worshiping God falsely. That's not the true God. I don't care what name you're using. You know, it might be happening today in the most beautiful cathedrals around the world. It might be coming from an awesome-sounding band or choir. You might have the greatest testimonial being given where people are just crying over how wonderful it is. But if you are portraying that you have to get God to like you, that you have to kind of manipulate God to get you to do that, if you, to get blessings, to get what you want, then you're really not worshiping the true God but some facsimile thereof. And let me tell you, manipulative use of emotions, outward showmanship, <laughs> that's American Christianity again and again. Sorry to say. Sometimes I wonder how much Christianity is actually going on in American Christianity. There's a lot of talkings these days about blessings and prosperity and experience and self-help and psychology and self-improvement. And yes, power and politics, um, not too much theology going on in a lot of Christian churches. Jesus is off to the side. Oh, but my brilliant words and what we can do and how successful we are and how big we can make it and how wonderful it is and how a lot, it's like has nothing to do with what God has in the scriptures at all. We talk a lot. We listen very little. We make a sales pitch rather than a gospel presentation. We center on our human work and our human efforts rather than on God's promises. There's a lot of ugly religion going on right now. And God hates it. That's what Amos said in that day and even today. So um, what does God want? What does he consider kind of beautiful? And that's our second point here, the call to prophetic faith. Both in Isaiah and Amos, he's going to tell us the alternative, if you want to put it that way. Amos puts it this way, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos is basically saying the beauty of faith lies in a constant application of God's love and mercy and justice and truth in the world that restoring those who've been oppressed, living in right relationship with others, treating people humanely, not using them, but serving them. 
where um, we are weaving together society again, where we are trying to help, as in the Old Testament, they talk about the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner in your midst. What we might talk about today is the marginalized and those who are the weakest in our society, where they are taken care of, where they are given equity, where we are bring, bringing them together as one family, seeing the value in every human life. That's the side of worship that Amos is focusing on. You can't have a beautiful show on Sunday and an ugly Monday morning. That's what Amos is saying. So why do ugly Monday mornings happen? Why is there a show but not really a follow-through? And I think Isaiah really gets to the heart of the matter. In fact, it is the heart of the matter. It is the heart, he says. In Isaiah uh, chapter 29, he says, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The heart is far away. You know, when you hear the word heart in the English language, we think of Valentine's Day, little hearts, right? And we think of emotions. And that's part of what the heart means. The Hebrew word is lev, and it means much more than simply emotions. It, the heart was the center of our thinking, the center of our being, in, according to the Old Testament and their understanding. The heart is where you think and you make sense of the world. The heart is where you make your choices, where your desires flow from. And when Isaiah says the human heart is far from God, he's basically saying that the inner life, the real life of the human being, has nothing to do with the outer experience of what is going on in the show. It's all play acting going on, and God sees right through that. So it's much more than just trying to whip up a feeling on a Sunday morning, and then your heart's in it. It's about my thoughts, my intentions, my attitude, my living, my behaviors, my attitudes, everything about me, my focus. But the prophets, they don't end there and say, your hearts are far from God. They know there's a huge, huge fundamental issue, big problem with the human heart. Maybe of all the prophets, Jeremiah says it the most clearly. He says in seven, the chapter 17 of his book, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? My heart is not aligned with God. I don't care how sincere I am. <laughs> it's not about my sincerity. It's that my heart doesn't want what God wants. My desires don't want what God wants. My human default is to set up, to grasp on, and want God to do what I want. The heart is deceitful, doesn't even realize it. Now, Martin Luther, he lived 500-ish years ago, and he's the founder of the Protestant Reformation, one of them. And he was probably the most religious person you would ever meet in your life before he became a follower of Jesus. He was pious, the most spiritual, the most rigorous 
and in his pursuit of trying to align his heart and his life and every being and every thought to what God wanted. He studied scriptures hour upon hour. He became a monk. He took the vows of chastity and poverty, and yet he realized something was desperately wrong with his heart. He wrote, um, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. <laughs> Yet what else I did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to take notice of my strict observance of the monastic order in my austere life? I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry, for I didn't believe in Christ. I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge. So in other words, he was using everything he did to try to manipulate God. He would use the good things he did, the times that he prayed, as well as what he would suffer. He would even put himself into suffering and difficulty in order to try to get God to like him, to love him, to want him. And it didn't work. And in fact, he realized it wasn't working. And he hated God even more for that because he didn't know the solution. So the dilemma is this. God wants our hearts. Our hearts are desperately sick. When we try to do something on our own, it doesn't solve the issue. It just makes it worse. We recognize it finally for what it is. So what's the solution to ugly religion? It's not going to be you doing something. It's the wonder upon wonder of what God does, God's surprising solution. In the prophets... The prophets realized the problem with the human heart time and again. What hard-hearted human beings have been like from the beginning, from Adam and Eve in that fall in the garden all the way along. A heart turned away from God, a heart turned into self, a heart curved around our own wants and needs and desires, such egotism, such narcissism, in fact. Moses already talked about it. He had been with the children of Israel for over 40 years in the wilderness. He knew what they were really like. But he also proclaimed what God would do one day. And he says this in chapter uh, 30 of Deuteronomy. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So he realized like circumcision was a cutting off of the bad, that God would do something to the heart to take away this self-centeredness. That's all he hints at there. He's the first prophet to maybe speak of this, but not the last. David himself realized personally how terrible his heart was and his heart condition was when he was caught, not only in the act of adultery, but in the act of murder. And in Isaiah 51, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. He knew that he needed a new heart. He needed something other than what he had. Ezekiel, another prophet later on, um, towards, well, a time when things were just falling apart in all of uh, society, said this, that God was going to do a new thing. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. So God's response. When God could just say, forget it, I'm done with you. 
I'm going to do away with you. I've tried time and again. Why should I have to try anymore? You will not follow me. You don't listen to me. You just want to tell me what to do. Isaiah says in our text, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things for this people with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. In other words, the wisest people, the most discerning couldn't even figure out what I'm going to do next. I'm going to do something so amazing. You're going to be shocked at that. Now, John Oswald, in his commentary in Isaiah, says that this shows again and again in the prophet Isaiah, you read through it, that there are two qualities that Isaiah highlights, that God has a capacity to work wonders and that his, he refuses to fit into prearranged, programmed categories. Is that great? That's the good news. It's kind of like all of a sudden a breakthrough, not from our end, not because I've changed my heart or I've reformed my life or gotten my act together. You know, so often people don't come to a church or say, you know, I've got to get, relig I've got to get religious first before I come, or I better get my act together before I get... Don't wait. <laughs> it won't happen. It didn't happen for me. It didn't happen for you. We don't have our act together. That's why we're here, by the way. We realize the condition of our hearts. We might look nice on the outside, but we realize the hypocrisy that we've all faced, you know. And others will say, well, the church is filled with hypocrites. Yeah, that's exactly where they belong. And we recognize, and there's always room for one more. God, though, knows all this about us. And he says, instead of coming down in judgment, he says he's going to do wonder upon wonders with his people. Right when there's a dead end. Right when you can't change yourself. Right like with Luther when he realized there's no way I can change my heart or get right with God on my own. I've tried everything. That's when God breaks through with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's right where he comes in the midst of the hypocrisy, in the midst of the ugliness of this world. God does a beautiful thing. Isaiah 29 is right. He's going to do wonder upon wonder. You know what's amazing, too? That passage of Isaiah 29 is one that Jesus himself quotes in the Gospel of Matthew. There in Matthew chapter 15, he, Jesus, right at that moment, had been confronted by the most pious, the most rigorously religious people in his day and age, the Pharisees. They were people who were just lay people who were using all the priestly laws that happened at the temple and said, we're going to apply them to our everyday life and do all the things to be ritually clean, ceremonially pure, and do everything as sincerely as possible as if they were going to change their own hearts. And Jesus calls them out when he is confronted saying, well, wait a minute, Jesus, your disciples, they don't wash before they eat. They're supposed to ceremonially wash just like the priests. Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you following the tradition of the elders? And Jesus calls out the hypocrisy and says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. And then he quotes Isaiah 29, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Right there, again, God hates that religion because religion is the human attempt 
to try to get God to love us and like us when God already does. And you're making God out to be who he is not. And Jesus responds then to the crowd and says, you know, the big problem with the Pharisees and all of us is not what goes inside of you. It's not the fact that you don't have clean hands. It's the fact that your heart is not clean. He says, what makes anyone unclean is this, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile the person, but to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. The real issue, why Jesus came, was to change this, not to change just the outward appearance of things. The heart is, again, the problem. And the solution is a wonder upon wonder. You get a heart transplant. You get a new heart. You get God's spirit. You get God to create a new heart within you, not because of anything that you do. God calls you into a new life. He resurrects you. He changes you. He doesn't call you into a new religion. He doesn't call you into new laws and rules so that if you follow them, maybe someday down the line, you'll get there. No, 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 no. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. Jesus does not call people to a new religion, but to life. And in order for Jesus to call you to life, he has to put his whole life on the line. He's the one with the pure heart. He's the one whose attitudes, whose intentions, whose emotions, whose desires, whose decisions have been and always were aligned with his Father and God's will and God's glory and not not focused on self. He alone loved the Lord his God, his Father, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. The only human who is truly, fully human as God intended, who honored God with his lips, with his actions, and with his heart. And this is the one who gives up his life for you. Wonder of wonders to give you a new heart. You see, ugly religion is what killed Jesus. I don't know if you realize it, but it was a religious conviction, a sentence of death on Jesus because ugly religion. They said he had blasphemed, that he was against God, that he was demonic, that he was all these other things because that can't be the way. But God used our ugly religion to do the most wonderful and beautiful thing through the death of Jesus Christ. He gives you, he opens up his heart to you, shows you his amazing love, and it melts our hearts of stone. Paul talks about this. I think he uses kind of the reminiscent of the words of Isaiah when he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, says, Since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the wonder upon wonder is God takes your heart of stone and gives you the heart of his own son, Jesus Christ, so that the life of Christ is pumping through your veins. And he does that through the ugly death upon a cross. 
so that you are a new creation and therefore you want to do the right thing. Now I'm going to say something provocative again. And it's not the first person who said this and hopefully not the last. Douglas John Hall writes this in one of his books. He says, Christianity is not a religion, period. It's not a religion. It's kind of the anti-religion, actually. And I've studied world religions. I'm teaching world religions. And I see that every world religion that I've is like this method, this technique for me to purify myself, to get there, to finally maybe allow myself to finally get to that point. And I think even in Christianity, like when I talked about Luther, he tried to do the same thing. And finally, he realized this had all been done for him in Jesus Christ, that it was a gift of God, that God in his righteousness makes us righteous, declares us righteous because the ugly death of Jesus Christ. It's not a list of do's and don'ts and you betters and you better nots. In fact, if we try to convert Christianity into a list of do's and don'ts, we diminish it. John Oswald is right when he says to speak of reducing the set of, to a do's and don'ts is to move one's faith from the center to the periphery. No longer does living with mighty, a mighty, dynamic, and free being demand one's whole attention. Now it can be relegated to the level of the automatic and unthinking. And that's what was going on for Isaiah's day, for Amos's day. Sadly, too much of our day. You have a life in Jesus. You have a relationship with God, not a religion. And through him, you have a loving Heavenly Father. And you don't even have to look at your heart and go like, well, am I sincere today now? Do I believe hard enough? No, just look at your Savior, and your heart is changed. Just trust in him, and you are a new creation. And Christmas is really about this wonder of wonders that in the ugliness of this world where there is no hope, that it's a dead end. God breaks in and does something that no one imagined, no one could believe, no one could discern, no one could figure out that the wise couldn't do it. And he makes all the wisdom of this world foolish before him because of Jesus. Maybe the religious people won't get it. And you find that out in the original story in Luke chapter 2. It's the irreligious, the shepherds, you know, the outcasts, the people who were, had a bad reputation who received the greatness of the gift because they let go of themselves and trusted in a savior in a rough-hewn manger. So it's okay. It's great, maybe. This is an ugly Christmas. It might be the best one yet because this is the world Jesus came for. Real human beings realize just how ugly and hypocritical they are, and they find their beauty in a Savior who places himself on the ugly cross for us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that... Um, you don't want us to follow some religion. You want us to be in relationship with you, that you free us from ourselves and all the have-tos and musts and all the compulsion and all the rigmarole and all the hypocrisy that we know, Lord God. I know my hypocrisy again and again I see it. 
And thank you for forgiving that, Lord, and changing it, renewing our hearts and our lives through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord God, this world, this Christmas, would see the truth of it, that it wouldn't be just a show, and that our church would not be about, quote, the show or the performance, but it would be just, wow, what a savior we have. Wow, how amazing that you give us the blessing of living together as community, as family. Lord God, we pray that you would have us grow in those ways, Lord, this Christmas season. We lift up to you many right now uh, in our midst. We lift up to you those who are facing very difficult times during this pandemic. We lift up to you right now, Pastor Goodman, uh, a friend of James here, who is in the hospital with COVID and his whole body is not responding, Lord God. We pray for your healing there. We lift again Andy Blankenship in the midst of this clinical trial. We thank you for some signs of progress now, Lord, but we pray for more healing. We lift up to you, O oh Lord, those here in our midst who've come faithfully today, even though they've got ailments, even though they realize they aren't feeling well today, that their bodies are not there. We pray for your healing there, Lord God. We pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts to be more like yours, Lord Jesus, that you would give us a heart transplant, that your life, that good news of the gospel would be flowing through our veins, and therefore justice and righteousness would be seen throughout the week, that it isn't just show, that it's reality in our lives, Lord, and bring us more and more aligned with that. But we thank you, Lord, that you came for this world even when it is ugly, because it was ugly to make it beautiful through your life, your death, and your resurrection. So Lord, as we prepare in just a moment to receive the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive you completely, that you would create in us that new heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within us. That you would bless those who are right now at home or watching online, as, uh, and that you would make us one family together wherever we happen to be, following you, Lord Jesus, and just living a life that you've called us to. All this we pray in your precious name, dear Jesus. Amen.